I just want to say that I love you guys. You're so encouraging. <laughs> wow. I don't want to repeat what he just said. Okay, I would, uh, a quick change of subject. Um, I'd like to welcome the Ron Slavens back from the Ukraine. And speaking of taking the gospel to the world, that's what today's about. So it's perfect fit. Uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And this is one of those Sundays where I'm looking at the passage and I'm like, man, we are going to be here for a long time today. Um, I promise not to go past 2 o'clock, but um, it is going to be, I'm going to try to run through this. So if it's kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant, I apologize in advance. But turn to Acts chapter 17. And uh, we have been in the book of Acts. If you're new today, we've been in the book of Acts. And um, as I've said every week, I want to kind of reacquaint you with the Bible if you don't know the Bible that well, um, which is probably many of us. But in the New Testament, which is everything written after Christ, you have the Gospels. That's the stories of Jesus. And his time here on earth. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the story of the church. This is after Christ ascended. And so, quick summary. Basically, the entire summary of the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it talks about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so the rest of the book is basically that playing out. And so, um, in the middle of the book, a guy named Paul, formerly known as Saul, get saved, transformed by Jesus, and so pretty much the rest of the book is about Paul taking mission trips, essentially, um, all over that part of the world, throughout the Mediterranean, and uh, convincing people of Jesus Christ and his Messiah uh, status, and bringing people to Christ, planting churches, and that kind of thing. So that's pretty much the rest of the book of Acts. And so Today raises a really important question because it raises the question, how do we reach our culture for Christ? Where you sit right now in your schools, wherever you might be, how do you reach your culture for Christ? And I think we have to be really wise about how we do this, especially in a culture like ours where pretty much everyone says they're a Christian. Almost everyone, if you ask them on the street, if you said, hey, are you a Christian? They'd be like, yeah, I'm a Texan, so I'm a Christian, Right? Most would say that they're, they're Christians, that they believe certain things about Jesus, therefore they think that they're saved. And so we have to be wise about how we share Christ with our culture. And um, here's one word of wisdom for you. I know that, um, that many of you are still like in impact mode, which is a good thing on one level. But um, the impact lessons we teach you guys are, are really good lessons to teach like kids. I mean, they're very concrete, and they're, very, they're, they're, they're true to the Scripture, they're true to the Bible. But um, I would not suggest busting out impact lessons on your close friends, okay? If your friend's like, okay, what is sin? You're like, well, sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases God. And you, like, wag their finger in their, in their face, and they're like, you're, you're a freak. What are you doing? I would, not suggest, I would not suggest that your friend is like, okay, tell me about the gospel, and that you just go into, like, impact lesson mode, Okay? Because I think your friends are going to have different kinds of questions than what, like, a four-year-old kid might ask, okay? And so you've got to use great wisdom in how you present the gospel and share the gospel with 
your friends, with your peers, okay? And so today kind of gives us an idea on how to do that and how to reach a culture that is really hard to reach for Christ. So um, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is traveling with the group. This is Paul, Silas, we think Timothy, and also Luke. And he goes on to Athens from last week's story. We skipped a city in there somewhere, though. And uh, now what words come to mind when you think of Athens? Greece, okay. Okay, the country is Greece, yes. What else comes to mind? When you think of Athens, okay, you guys, you guys are like, we don't know, we're not in school right now, so why don't you just be quiet? So maybe like the Olympics, maybe, um, what else do you think of? What do you picture in your mind when you think of Athens? Big temples. What else? Caesar. Caesar. (laughs) Wrong empire. Caesar. All right, um, so basically, you guys don't know anything. Okay, let me just go on then uh, from there. So when, when you think of Athens, certain things might pop into your mind. I think of the Olympics. That's where they began, supposedly. But, um, but in that day, listen up. In that day, if you, thought of, if you thought of Athens, if you were to mention the word Athens to anyone elsewhere in the world, they would think of idols. They would think of temples to their Greek gods, their Greek goddesses, and they had a temple and a, they had a god or goddess for everything. Everything you could imagine they had a god or goddess for. And so as Paul walks to the city of Athens, as Paul walks the streets of Athens, it says that his spirit becomes distressed. It says he becomes provoked. He becomes troubled. And so the question we have to ask is, Why aren't we as troubled as Paul was? As we walk our schools, as we walk our communities, as we walk our cities, why aren't we as distressed and troubled as Paul was when he saw the idolatry in Athens? What what was it about Paul that he was so troubled by what he saw in Athens? And what is it about us that basically many of us walk our places, we walk our, our schools, our communities, and we really, we really don't care. I mean, I'm including myself in that many times. We don't see things as, as urgently as, as Paul saw things. So with that said, go ahead and discuss your, your first three questions there at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, before we move on to the next part of the text, I also just remembered that uh, Maddie Phillips also went to the Ukraine, so we don't want to leave her out. Maddie Phillips went to the Ukraine as well, so welcome her back as well. Yes. Welcome back, Maddie. I always think of the, like, Ukraine, I just think Ron Slabens. I just think Ron Slabens, Ukraine. They're, like, synonymous now, you know? So, um, but I apologize for that. 
But in the passage you guys just read, in the passage we just read, there are three things I want to draw attention to you on. What we see, we see Paul doing three things here in this passage. We see that it says that Paul, he saw, Paul saw, he felt, and then he spoke. Now think about that for a moment. Paul, he saw the, the idolatry, he felt something about it, then he spoke into it. Now, many Christians today, people like us, we never see that kind of idolatry because, because we don't want to hang around those kinds of people, right? We don't want to go around those kinds of people, so we never even see the kind of stuff that Paul is seeing here in this story. We're, these are the kind of people that just cordon themselves off from culture and society and want nothing to do with those kinds of people. Um, those people are evil. Those people are bad. We're good. We're great. We're righteous. We don't want to associate with those kinds of people. And, and if we have that kind of mindset as Christians, then we will never see anything to be burdened about in the way that Paul was burdened. We also see that Paul, he felt something towards it. So some Christians do this. Some Christians, they see the idolatry of culture, and they feel something about it, but it's the wrong kind of feeling. They just feel disgusted by it, right? Many Christians just feel disgusted by what they see in the world around them, so they just don't ever choose to speak into it in a constructive way. Or some Christians will choose to speak into it, but it's a different kind of speaking than what Paul spoke in Acts chapter 17. So we see three really important things. Paul sees the idolatry. He, he feels something about it. He feels troubled by it, and he chooses to speak into it. This is just what Christians have to do, but we have to use wisdom. You see, Athens was a highly spiritual, a highly religious city. And I think as Christians, many times we think that everyone who's not a Christian is just completely unspiritual, completely anti-religious. But I think what I see is that very few people are completely anti-spiritual or anti-religious, right? There are very few people that would just say, I'm a total atheist. I don't think anything exists beyond just chemicals. We're just biological beings. We're just chemi chemical beings. Nothing else exists. There, there are very few people like that. In fact, I would say that most people are highly spiritual and highly religious. They're just worshiping the wrong God. This is true. Atheist question as well. I would say most atheists, atheists probably just don't know, so they fall on atheism. In fact, my wife and I went to uh, Austin about a week ago, and I took her to some places for her birthday just to go to eat down there and whatnot. And, um, and we're going to this, we're in this bookstore, and, uh, and we're walking to this bookstore, and I, there's like these massive sections for other religions. I mean, Buddhism, Islam, everything you can think of. There's like a section for like ones you haven't even heard of before, right? And what you see is Austin, in most of our minds, is seen as a very anti-religious, anti-spiritual city. But it's really the exact opposite. It's a very religious, very spiritual city. They're just worshiping the wrong God for many people. Worshiping the wrong God. And so everyone worships, but many people worship false gods. There's these misconceptions that we have about ancient idolatry. Um, it's not that these people thought that their God was, like, contained in the statue. I think most of us have this idea of, like, idolatry, like they're making this little statue or figurine, they're like, I'm, I'm going to make my God, you know, they're carving a, a piece of wood or some stone, and they're like, this is my God, they're like, contained inside this statue. That's not really how many of them saw their idol. 
Many saw these gods as far off and distant, impersonal, and they wanted to make their God tangible, so they'd make something to represent their far-off God. And they might bow to the statue, but they're really bowing to this far-off, distant God. So they're trying to make God tangible so that they can put their, their hands on. And so in the Ten Commandments, God even tells the Israelites to make no idolatrous image, make no graven image, even of himself. Right? So you may have missed that part of the Ten Commandments. God said, don't make any graven image of anything in heaven or on earth. What he's saying is don't make even an idol in my honor. Don't make anything in my honor. And why do you think God might do that? Why do you think God might tell his people, don't make anything and try to represent me with anything? Because think about this. If you were to make a statue that depicted God, what would it be? Any idea? Like what, what would you make? Just for a moment, just pretend. If you were to make a statue that depicted God, what would you make? You're like, it's a trick question. I'm not going to say because that would be idolatry. A lion, right? Maybe. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe something, something really big, right? Maybe, you would, you would, um, maybe a bird. But you, you get the idea that you cannot contain God in anything, right? You can't contain him in any image that you might conjure up in your mind because our God is not like anything. He's not like anything. And so there are two kinds of idolatry I want to cover with you just real quick. There are two kinds of idolatry, and write this down if you're the kind of person that writes things down. The first one is this, treating the creation like it's the creator. Treating the creation like it's the creator. What I mean by that is an idol for everyone is basically a God substitute. It's any person or thing that occupies the place of God in your life. So the first one is treating the creation like it's the creator. This is when we take things that God created, and this is talked about in Romans chapter 1, and we elevate them to God-like status in our life. There is one person who should have God-like status in your life, and it's God. It's Jesus. Only he can meet your ultimate needs. But what you and I do is we, we take things that are created, and we elevate them to God-like status and expect those things to fulfill us. And so it's the thing you look to for happiness, ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction. Fill in the blank here. If I just had fill in the blank, I'd be happy. If I just had this thing, I would be satisfied. What is that thing for you? Whatever you fill in the blank, that is, that is an idol for you. This can be fame, this can be money, power, sex, food, alcohol, drugs, television, video games, possessions, girlfriend, boyfriend. And you might say to me, well, I don't have a boyfriend, so how can that be an idol? Exactly. Do you realize that an idol is often the thing that you don't have? An idol is very often the very thing that you don't have. And, and you think to yourself, if I just, if I just had that... I'd be happy. If I just had that, I would have complete joy. That's where the statement comes from, you complete me, right? Right? 
there is no person that can play that role in your life. Only God can bring you that kind of joy and satisfaction. You see, something else, idols can also be good things that we turn into God things. They can be things that are actually good in your life. This could be parents, friends, relationships, work, sports, and sports are a good thing. Church, even church, even Christian service. Serving somehow in a youth group can can almost be idolatrous if you allow it to become that. So the question is, what is your God substitute? What is that person or thing that you look to for happiness? The second way of of idolatry is treating the creator like he's a creation. This is to take God himself and to try to lower him to creation status. This is to bring God, God down. One is to take creation, elevate it. This is to take the creator and bring him down to creation status. This is what the Israelites would do. This was trying to make God tangible. This is the kind of idolatry the Israelites were many times guilty for. They would try to take God and lower him and make an image of something else to represent him. And by doing so, they're trying to worship the right God, but doing it in the wrong way. This is like making God in our image. This is to to remake God in our image so that he does what we want him to do. This next statement, I think, summarizes this, this kind of idolatry. Idolatry isn't just to worship the wrong God, but to worship the one true God the wrong way. This is what the Israelites would do. It wasn't like they would just say, oh, we're done with you. We're going over here to this other God. They would do that at times, but they would oftentimes take, try to worship the right God, but do it in the wrong way, which is still idolatry. Because essentially, you are remaking God into your own image, and it's a different God altogether. And so we think we're worshiping God, but it's one that we've made up in our own minds. And I think you and I are guilty of this as well. This is the kind of person that makes their own rules and expects God just to approve them. In verse 17, it says that um, Paul reasoned in the marketplace. See, back then, the marketplace wasn't just a place to exchange goods, but also a place to exchange ideas. Okay, Athens was a completely different culture that you and I live in today. So the place you'd go to, to buy stuff was also the place you would go and hear like ideas, philosophy, um, those kinds of things were happening throughout Athens. So if you can imagine this happening at HEB, right? Like you go to HEB to get the milk, and someone's like, what do you think of existentialism, right? And you're like, I just, I just want to get 2% milk. Can you please be quiet, right? But there was a dual purpose for the marketplace back then. It was to exchange goods, but also to exchange ideas. And so we, we learn in verse 18 that um, Paul is around these two kinds of philosophers. It's, it's the Epicureans and the Stoics. So who are these guys? Who are these people, these big names? The Epicureans were basically people that are all about pleasure. They're all about happiness. These were the um, legalized marijuana people, uh, the partiers. Let's just love everybody. Let's just all get along. Let's just have lots of fun, enjoy life, and pleasure is king. Okay? If they had a bumper sticker, this is what it would say. If it feels good, do it. Whenever, whenever you want to do, pleasure is king. If it feels good, do it. That's what's ruling them. Now, the second people, the Stoics, their world is like a big machine. Okay? In their mind, everything is predetermined. 
they would turn off emotion, they would turn off passion. If the Epicureans said, enjoy life, the Stoics would say, just endure life. If they had a bumper sticker, it would say, and I don't mean to offend you with that, but that's the closest I can get, right? That's what their philosophy was. And if this is offensive, I have a less offensive one for the next slide. Put that next slide up. I found this on the internet. I thought it was funny. So I thought I would show it to you. So, but here's the, here's the deal, yeah. That's what that says, yes. So, um, so just for a moment, think these people, their mindset was, hey, just stuff happens, life happens, life happens to you, try not to cry about it, try not to be upset by it. That was their mindset, okay? Now, you guys can go to the next slide so they're not focused on that slide. Just so, next slide. Thank you, thank you. So we still see these two philosophies at work today, okay? So, so Paul doesn't just see it and grieve it. He speaks into these two philosophies. Look at verse 19. It says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. The people in Athens were consumed with one thing. New. Anything new. The people in Athens were not concerned with truth. They were concerned with just tell me the latest ideas, tell me the latest thing, tell me the newest idea out there, and let's discuss it, debate it, talk about it. And I think as Christians, we can fall into the same trap today. We are bored by old truth. We are bored by the gospel. We are bored by Jesus for many of us. And we want new ideas. We want new stuff. If someone doesn't say it just right, we go to the next place. And I think we fall into the same trap today that the Athenians fell into. We just want to hear new stuff. Do you realize how... I I love this job. I love doing this job. But sometimes it's funny because I think about this. We basically say the same thing to you every Sunday. Are are you catching that? Do you realize that? We, We say the same thing almost every week. Just different story, different packaging. It's all about Jesus. We say the gospel every week. But some of us go, you know what? I don't want to hear that anymore. I'm done with that. I'm kind of moving on to something else. And so we struggle in the same ways that the Athenians struggled with this. We just want to hear new stuff. What's the next thing? So go ahead and discuss uh, questions four, five, and six. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, what I want to do to save time is skip to verse 28. So in your Bible, skip to verse 28, and on the screen, skip to verse 28. Basically, I'll skip over the part where it says, uh, Paul gets up in front of these guys and starts to um, compare their idolatry to God, to Jesus. And so we pick up in verse 28, where he's talking about Jesus. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That would be Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So watch what Paul does. Paul quotes their secular, pagan, non-Christian poets in this passage. He actually starts there, all right? So put the next slide up. He starts with their truth, then leads them to the truth. He starts with their truth and leads them to the truth. I want to unpack what this might look like today in like five minutes, okay, before you do your next discussion question. So here we go. The first thing I want you to write down, if you're a person that writes things down, uh, is this. You've got to seek to understand the culture of the people you're trying to talk to. You've got to seek to understand their culture. Paul understood the culture of Athens. He understood the people he was talking to. And so the question you have to ask is, who are the philosophers today? We don't have Stoics and Epicureans running around, at least people that I don't know. I don't know if you're one of those kind of circles or not, but I don't. Um, but who are the philosophers today? I would say the philosophers today are songwriters, screenwriters, um, anyone that produces art in our culture today, I would say are some of the philosophers of today, right? This is why you guys go and post uh, song lyrics on your Facebook all the time, because it means something to you. You're like, this is so deep. I have no idea what it means, but it sounds so deep. And... And so these are the people that are raising the questions, I think, in our, in our culture today. This is also why we do things like God in film. I want you guys to understand the culture that you live in. Now, I'm not saying you have to go listen to, like, Eminem, okay, to understand culture. Like, I know what he's about. I don't have to put his stuff on my iTunes to know what he's all about, right? But um, I do think as a Christian, you've got to be smart and wise. Don't hear things, watch things that will cause you to personally sin and stumble. I mean, what those things are, it's a different message, different time. But you've got to understand the culture that you're trying to reach. And so we are made in God's image, and there is some truth to what even Christians or non-Christians have to say, but it's always an incomplete truth. It's always an incomplete truth. So the first thing, understand the culture. Second thing is, Seek to understand their concept of God. Ask your friends questions like, what do you believe about God? What are your beliefs about God? What do you think he's like? What are your, what's your concept of God? And let them talk. Much of this is asking questions. Just asking questions and listening to them. Thirdly, seek to understand their questions about God. This is where it gets real personal. What are some things you struggle with when it comes to God? What are your questions about God? What, what doubts do you have? What are the things that are keeping you from coming to believe in Jesus? Seek to understand their questions about God. And then lastly, fourthly, show them how Jesus is the answer to their questions. Show them how Jesus is the answer to their questions. Now, I'm not talking about like Sunday school answer here. When your friend's having an issue, you're like, Jesus! Jesus! The answer is Jesus. It's always Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you've got to be wise and discerning how you do this. 
But show them how Jesus is the answer to their questions. Because very, listen up, listen up. Very often, when your friends struggle with belief, they'll say things like, I can't believe in a God who lets people suffer like he does. And your immediate reaction is to go, you want to jump to like intellectual. You want to jump to, well, let me explain why God allows them to have suffering. Or you pull out your, your books and your, your smarts and you come ask me questions like, you know, why does God let people suffer? And I'm like, I don't know. And you're like, I got to get more than that. And on and on we go. So you've got to give them Jesus. Let me show you how you do this. When it comes to suffering, which is very often an issue that people have with why they don't come to know Christ, you might want to lead them somewhere like this. Because suffering is your big hang-up with God. Well, then who better to worship than a God who has suffered? Who better to worship than a God who has suffered for us on our behalf? We worship a God who is not distant, who's not far removed. We worship a God who entered our world and suffered right alongside us. So whatever you're going through right now, and this includes you guys as well, Jesus felt it. Jesus experienced it. He suffered. He suffered with us. And I think when they hear Jesus like that, they start to go, yeah, I can... I can follow a God like that. I understand a God like that. Secondly, the question of evil. Everyone wants to know, okay, why, does, why do evil things happen? Not just sin, but like other things that we would consider evil. People sinning against other people and so on. Who better to follow than the God who will ultimately put an end to evil? Who better to follow than Jesus? Who better to follow than the man himself? It says right here, he will judge. He will judge. So the evil you have a problem with, he's going to judge that. Because my question would be, tell me one other world religion that says that a righteous and good God is going to judge all evil and sin. I can't answer that anyone's going to do that except Jesus. So you want to try to show them how Jesus is the answer to their questions. With that said, go ahead and discuss questions 7, 8, and 9, and you guys can dismiss your tables. Just pray for your tables when you're done, and you'll be dismissed.